This is the story of an amazing man. This King John Sigismund of Transylvania. This young man who came to power at 19 and lived only a fleeting 11 years after that. This young ruler so far ahead of his time who instituted an official policy of religious tolerance, the Edict of Torda, which we celebrate today. Um, and is being celebrated this month, the 450th anniversary, by Unitarians across the world. And it was in this small, unassuming country, he brought an unprecedented measure of religious freedom to this land and these people. An amazing individual, he was described by the man who commanded his bodyguard as of slight physique, and not strong of health, yet skillful in all manly sports. He was highly intelligent and spoke eight languages of refined taste and manners and with a charming personality. Brave, industrious, generous, and frank, distinguished for his personal virtues and devoted to religion. Devoted to religion and devoted to religion in a particularly enlightened way, especially for a king of that time and place. Devoted to probing and exploring and debating and changing his religion if reason and understanding led him to do so. But not devoted in that narrowly focused, intolerant, combative way that viewed the declaration of truth as a declaration of war against all who would disagree that held the expression of a religious belief as rendering all others invalid, heretical, and indeed criminal. And remember, such a crime against religious orthodoxy in any particular European country of the time could have resulted in fines, the loss of one's property and home, imprisonment, torture, and even death. In that climate, King John dared to ask a radical question that might be captured in the tragic, immortal words of Rodney King, can't we all just get along? Further, he dared to answer it in the affirmative and to attempt its realization under his rule. This is indeed the story of an amazing man, an incredible individual, but the story of an individual is never only the story of an individual. It is the story of a person in relationship with other individuals. For instance, it is also the story of John's mother, Queen Isabella. She was the acting ruler when John, though king, was still just a boy. And she was faced with the ramifications of the Reformation when all of the protesters, Protestants, had split from the Catholic Church and had these various um, understandings of religion arising. And there were intensifying battles between Catholics and Lutherans in Transylvania. In that climate, it was she who issued the original decree of religious tolerance in 1557 that allowed each person to maintain whatever religious faith he wishes with old or new rituals, while we at the same time leave it to their judgment to do as they please in the matter of faith, just so long as they bring no harm to bear on anyone 
at all. In other words, hold fast to your own truth and don't hurt anybody. In light of this decree, King John's later actions are not so surprising, but rather inspired by the instruction and example set by his mother. And it is also the story of Dr. Giorgio Biandrata, physician to the Queen of Poland, Isabella's mother, sent to serve in Transylvania when young John became ill. Biandrata was an enthusiastic student of theology, and he left Catholicism behind as his search for the truth turned him toward the views proclaimed in the Reformation and further even to that heresy that would come to be known as Unitarianism. He was a trusted advisor to King John Sigismund and a great influence on the young king's own search for truth as he introduced him to the ideas of Unitarianism, most especially through introducing John to the thought and preaching of Francis David, who would become court preacher at Biandrata's urging. So, this is undoubtedly the story of Francis David too, or David Ferenc, as they say in Transylvania. He is the beloved father of Transylvanian Unitarianism to this day, and one of the most prominent figures in our entire tradition. He had the distinction of being, throughout the span of his life, a rector in a Catholic school, a bishop of the Hungarian Lutherans, a bishop of the Reformed Church in Transylvania and the founder and bishop of the Unitarian Church of Transylvania. And yes, they do have bishops there in the Unitarian Church of Transylvania. He was a fierce and eloquent debater with an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible and a poet's tongue, they said, but a debater who kept his mind open to the insights of others. He was willing to convert to change his mind if the evidence led him to that decision. Now those numerous conversions might lead some today to call him a flip-flopper. <laughs> but it must be said that his conversions were never opportunistic. They never seemed strategically planned to curry favor from anyone. Indeed, his life could have been much more comfortable if he had not insisted on following the truth wherever it would lead. It seems to me that the changes he came to actually spoke to the integrity and the internal consistency of his search. So when David and Biandrata met, they began to explore the doctrines of this notion of the Trinity, of, of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit three persons in one. Uh, the doctrines of the Trinity that Biandrata had heard questioned in the religious communities he was a part of in Poland and elsewhere. Whereas Biandrata was by nature cautious and strategic in his questioning, David was the opposite. He was spontaneous and bold. He immediately began challenging the doctrine of the Trinity in his sermons, raising some controversy among his hearers, and most especially alarming the bishop of the Reformed Church in Hungary. It was those controversies that called King John to form these debates. He said, okay, let's come together. Let's talk about it. 
There were lots of debates, almost monthly debates in a variety of venues over five years. Large numbers of the common people, along with clergy and nobles, attended. The king himself, an avid follower of religious questions and controversies, often presided. Secretaries took notes for eventual publication and distribution among those who could not attend. These debates were popular. Picture the women's march yesterday. It brought out crowds of people, rock concerts, football games, political rallies. It's hard to know what to compare them to, and it's hard to imagine from this vantage point the popularity of what looks like obscure and abstract theological issues except to say that quite possibly for these people the issues were neither obscure nor abstract. These debaters were exploring questions of belief that held practical consequences in the lives of the faithful. They were trying to find what is true. What is truth? And we talked about um, debates as being a little more of a refined uh, uh, setting than arguments. As it turns out, the debates were not always nice or polite, but rather impassioned and could get a bit nasty. The Transylvanian press, sympathetic to the Unitarian understanding, printed a pamphlet entitled On the True and False Knowledge of One God that purportedly held what has been described as coarse illustrations that poked fun at Trinitarians. I will let you imagine what that could look like. I don't know. But it greatly angered the Orthodox, not least of all because these pictures had a way of sticking in the minds of the people. And Francis David said um, in one of his less charitable moments, I followed the line of scripture, but my opponents hid it in a bag. They turned light into darkness when they made three of the Father God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and two of Christ, man, and God, their religion is self-contradictory to the extent that even they cannot present it in a whole. <laughs> we can only imagine what would have happened if Twitter had been available. <laughs> what Unitarian historian Earl Morse Wilbur calls the greatest debate in the whole of history of Unitarianism took place in King John's own palace. The Unitarians had five debaters led by Biandrata and David, while there were six debaters on the Calvinist side headed up by their bishop. The debate began, as I mentioned earlier, on, on March 18, 1568, at 5 a.m. in the morning with prayer on each side. The debate was conducted in Latin and lasted 10 whole days. On the ninth day, the Calvinists had informed the king they had had it, they were heading home, and the king said, in, in effect, so, you forfeit? <laughs> At which point they decided to stay and see it through to the end. David's verbal skills, his acute reasoning, his vast knowledge of the scriptures, uh, witnesses say, apparently burned bright in the heat of this debate. To the point that when he returned home to the, his village of Kolosvar, the people were gathered in the street in celebration waiting for him. 
They urged him to stand, this is the uh, sort of apocryphal story, to stand atop this huge boulder at the edge of town and declare his new doctrine to them. Then they took him on their shoulders to the church where he finished his sermon. Can you imagine, after ten days of debate, how about a sermon? Yeah, sure. Legend has it that the whole town converted to Unitarianism that day. It's probably not precisely true, but certainly a large number declared as Unitarians, and the Lutherans purportedly left town and crossed Kalasvar off their list of best cities to live in. <laughs> David and Milius, the bishop of the Reformed Church, two years later engaged in something of a rematch debate, this time in the Hungarian, which more people could understand. There were nine speakers on each side, um, and it supposedly focused on this uh, rivalry between David and Melius. King John attended and sometimes took part in the discussion, and he became a little testy when Melius um, supposedly attacked David with some unkind things. He reminded them of the rules of the debate, that freedom of conscience was fundamental to the discussion that if they couldn't adhere to those rules, maybe they should find another country in which to conduct the discussion. Um, but at that debate, King John was especially impressed by David, which led to him converting to Unitarianism um, a little later. So King John Sigismund is the only Unitarian king and sort of held up in our history for that um, note. However, I think that an important thing to remember about Francis David is that though he fiercely debated his position, he also fiercely supported religious toleration. If he succeeded in converting King John Sigismund to Unitarianism, he also strengthened that notion within the king, planted by Isabella, the king's mother, that religion should not be mandated from a political authority however right and proper it seemed. And for that time and place, that was radical, radical notion. He said, there is no greater piece of folly than to try to exercise power over conscience and soul, both of which are subject only to their creator. And more succinctly, in a reading from our hymnal that we read together this morning, we need not think alike to love alike. Much of our pride in this story lies in the fact that not only that Unitarians took power for a brief shining moment, but that in that, the religious tolerance and freedom of conscience were primary values. So, there you have it. A golden moment in Unitarian history, a proud passage in the story of religious freedom, and everyone lived happily ever after, right? Not quite. Queen Isabella and King John and Biandrata and David enjoyed great successes in their lives, but no successes that were untouched by failure or loss. And though they each helped to realize the promise of religious freedom, this promise did not go untarnished in the ensuing years. 
On January 14, 1571, King John, having already converted to Unitarianism two years prior, declared Unitarianism a received or official religion of his realm, along with Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Calvinism. The very next day, he was hurt in a carriage accident and died from his injuries a few months later at age 31. After King John's untimely death, successive rulers of Transylvania paid lip service to the act of religious tolerance and freedom of conscience, but they worked against it in their policies as they sought to consolidate power. Can you imagine that? Unitarians having uniquely enjoyed the protection of a ruling body in Transylvania quickly started to feel the fear that followed those branded as heretics. Oppression and persecution of Unitarians began to increase in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. For instance, a law was passed that gave church buildings to the faith which a majority of the congregants professed. Now that sounds somewhat reasonable on the face of it, but ways were found to stack the deck against the Unitarians. In one of the more diabolically devious schemes that I've read, a reformed minister, having secretly converted a well-known Unitarian minister to the reformed faith, would take this former Unitarian to Unitarians' congregations and ask those who gathered how many of them professed the faith of the man before them. As the former Unitarian minister's conversion had been kept a secret, the congregants imagined that the minister was still Unitarian, so a majority of them raised their hands, a count was taken, and the church was legally claimed by the Reformed faith. And the suspicion, oppression, and eventual persecution of Unitarians grew from there. Francis David, who continued his courageous and uncompromising exploration of religious questions, he experienced a split with his good friend Biandrata. Biandrata was much more politically savvy and he pleaded with David to leave off what he called any further innovation in theology. In other words, stop asking questions and avoid controversy. Biandrata knew the dangers to the Unitarian Church of attracting the judgmental eyes of the state. But David could not imagine compromising his religious quest for political expediency. The recurring battle led to David's arrest and conviction, with his old friend Biandrata witnessing for the prosecution. David, who had once been carried to the church as a hero on the shoulders of the people of Kolosvar, ended his days in prison in the land which he had known as home. He is reported to have written on his cell wall Nothing shall hold up the truth on its way. And all of this, of course, is only a tiny part of the story of religious persecution and oppression that fills history and continues to plague our world today. If we are to celebrate this story of the Edict of Torda as a bright moment in our tradition, and I think we should, we must also act out of the realization that we have yet to fulfill its promise. Too often we pass off the religious persecution 
that happens across the world as their problem, shrugging our shoulders, raising our open palms in mute resignation, that, that's just how religion is. It necessarily breeds that kind of intolerance. King John Sigismund didn't think so. Francis David didn't think so. Isabella and Biandrata and all of the nameless others in that land who lived in the precious light and freedom of a new way of being religious in community, they didn't think so. Further, in this country, founded on the premise of the freedom of religion, we all too often become apathetic about it. We imagine that it can never be taken away or that it wouldn't really matter if it was. I hope this story reminds us how unique and precious this freedom is. And finally, what struck me about these people I've mentioned today is that they were all very passionate about their faith and passionately committed to the practice of religious tolerance at the same time. They welcomed the impassioned debate, eager to communicate with one another, to correct and enlighten one another as well as themselves. Too often in this society, in this Unitarian Universalist tradition of ours, we imagine that the acceptance of a diversity of views requires that we not have many strong convictions ourselves. Next time you feel that way, I ask you to recall Francis David debating for ten days or writing on his cell wall. They're not either-or propositions. To be fervent about what we believe and to be fervent about the right of everybody to their own beliefs. If they were either-or propositions, I wouldn't be here speaking to you right now. Barbara Peskin writes, because of those who came before, we are. In spite of their failings, we believe. Because of and in spite of the horizons of their vision, we too dream. So let's remember the people. Those I've mentioned and the many that we will never know, but know we're there. Let's celebrate their accomplishments, the light that still illuminates our present actions all these years later. And let's remember that the promise of what was begun is yet to be fully fulfilled. It is in our hands now to carry and hand off to those who will follow. May we engage this task with all of the passion and conviction and openness that we can. May we do justice to our history.